All right, we'll grab your Bibles and open up to Ephesians chapter 2. We are in our third week of Advent, the anticipation of Jesus' coming. Uh, For those of you who haven't been here, let me do a quick recap. We started with hope. Um, Hope is to be able to trust that the future will be better than the present. Right now, this is more than just wanting things to improve. Um, Hope is the confidence that things will not always be as they are now. And I said there's two things that need to be there that are necessary for us to be able to have hope. First, something has to be more powerful than our struggles. And second, this power needs to be on our behalf. And this is why it's important for us to hold on to the fact that God is sovereign and that he is good. Because if God is not in control, then we are at the mercy of evil forces. And if God is not good then we can't be sure that his strength will benefit us. And so our hope rests on God being powerful and using that power for our benefit. Now, at first glance, when we think about Christmas, the baby in the manger doesn't scream power. But the truth is, the act of incarnation, God becoming flesh, requires the bending of the rules of nature. That a virgin could give birth means that God is greater than the process of creating life because he's the one who created that process and is in control of it. This eternal divine nature being united to a temporary human body, what we call the hypostatic union, or fully God, fully man. This is an impossible idea for our minds to make sense of. And so the birth of Christ is a message of quiet power. Now, it's also a statement of of love, which we looked at last week. It's God reminding his creation that he has not forgotten about them. He comes into the world to heal all the brokenness that sin has caused. And he comes not to just offer another option to us, right? Not one more thing that maybe will work. He comes to bring a living hope. Peter describes it this way in 1 Peter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And what this tells us is that a Christian's hope is sure because it is guarded by God's power. He's keeping it in heaven for you. And this power is comforting because it's manifested in love. And so we abide in this love. We root ourselves in the reality of God's concern for us. And this becomes the foundation for our hope. Now today we're going to look at what this love and hope produces. More specifically, we are going to dive into the issue of peace. Now, peace is an interesting idea because at its core, every human being is on a search for peace. Right? Even those who act in, in, in violent ways, even those people that you're like, that is not a peaceful human being, um, they're, all, they're, they're doing it in sort of this reckless pursuit of inner peace. Because peace is not just a lack of conflict, it's, it's a fittedness, a, a, a rightness, a harmony of all things. 
And there's not a person alive who does not desire that sort of balance to their life. Right? Freedom from fear, from pain, from shame. The question is, how do we get that? What is it going to take for us to be at peace? Now, in our culture, the idea that's out there, this is what is is taught, is that you achieve peace through tolerance. This is what I call the coexist model. It says everyone will be at peace, everyone will be at harmony, if everyone is allowed to pursue their own individual idea of good. And so if we can just get rid of judgment and, and disagreement, then everyone can, can sort of find their own version of peace. And the way to support another person's pursuit of peace then is to become an ally, someone who champions and celebrates their pursuit of peace. So we're all these individual units seeking individual peace in our own way. And the worst thing you could possibly do is get in the way of somebody else's path. Now, what this modern optimism doesn't take into account is is that two different paths of peace are going to cross. They're going to be at odds with, with one another. There's going to be overlap. It's inevitable. The idea that everyone can pursue their own individual desires and that that just won't lead to any conflict is, well, it's false. It greatly misunderstands human nature. We're going to bump into one another. We're going to step on each other's toes. Different aims and desires are going to get in the way. And so the individual pursuit of peace is really just a way of pretending things are in harmony when they're not. And this sets us up to be very let down. And I would say we already know that because we all live in this time period and we all in some ways are very let down. In this age of tolerance, we don't feel an overwhelming sense of peace. As a matter of fact, I would say this leads us to all feeling sort of attacked. Because it's impossible for us to not have conflict, and we don't believe that we should have conflict, then when it happens, we feel like somebody's getting in the way. Someone's keeping me from peace. And so we blame, because peace would be possible if it weren't for those other people. And this coexist model leads to greater and greater turmoil. Now, another way that people seek out peace is through the government. Right? Now, I grew up hearing you can't legislate morality, uh, meaning that you can't make people good. Right? You can't produce peace through laws. Yet a lot of how we pursue peace and and equality and fairness and character is by sort of making things legal or illegal. Now laws have their place. Romans 13 tells us that the government was created by God for the purpose of enforcing justice. We see in the Old Testament that God intends um, these stewards to help take care of the poor and weakest among us. There's an aspect of peace and balance here for sure. But it's incredibly limited. Human authority can prevent some bad things from happening, but it can't bring about the much deeper healing that needs to take place for us to have peace. G.K. Chesterton saw society putting more and more hope into the government for peace, and this was his response to it. He says, throw everything on the secular government if you like, 
But do not be surprised if a machinery that was never meant to do anything but secure external decency and order fails to secure internal honesty and peace. Right? Justice and legal protections provide a certain amount of communal safety, but it cannot secure peace. Now, the world Jesus was born into had even another uh, way of pursuing peace. Uh, Jesus was, dor- was born during what's called the Pax Romana, or the time of Roman peace. Uh, this was a 200-year period of time in Roman history where they weren't fighting with one another. They're still fighting. But this is when they weren't fighting with each other, um, and it led to kind of a, a huge expansion of the Roman Empire. Um, it was a time that they kind of look at and go, that's when things were really going well for us. Now, the way that they maintained this peace as they went out and expanded and conquered new areas was they would Romanize these conquered areas, and then they would put in a system of order um, to kind of keep the, keep the peace. A source I read this week described it this way. It says, Romans regarded peace not as an absence of war, but as a rare situation which existed when all opponents had been beaten down and lost the ability to resist. Roman peace was a result of beating your adversaries into submission. And if you got them to the point where they were so beat down that they were unwilling to fight back, you would have peace. But that's not peace. That's fear. Everyone fell in line because everyone feared Caesar. And you had a system where each person was willing to basically oppress the person below them because they feared the person above them. And we see this all over the Christmas story. Right? Mary and Joseph travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Why? To take part in a Roman census. The empire was making account of the people so they would know how to tax them, but also so that they would know how to rule over them. We see this play a role after Jesus was born, and Herod orders the slaughter of the innocents. Right? Herod was a Jewish king, but he was a Jewish king who had been given his power by the Roman authorities to force peace. And so he called for all the males under the age of two to be killed so that they could stamp out the news of this other king who would rival authority and who threatened peace. And so peace was something accomplished with the sword, which I would say is slightly less peaceful for the people on the other end of the sword. But in all of this, we see that peace is a a, a major motivation for people, a reason why we do what we do. And as we see in the three examples that I gave, our pursuit of peace often gives and creates more problems than it solves. So in order to actually bring all relationships into alignment, to create tranquility and well-being for all, we need far more than tolerance or forced allegiance. So in Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to see how the Prince of Peace does the work to redeem and reconcile and make all things new. And in this, we will see how receiving his work on our behalf allows us to have a peace that is not reliant on the situation we find ourselves in. With that, let's get into it. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be starting in verse 13. It says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws of commit the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So Paul begins here by identifying the problem. What is it that keeps us from peace? And he sort of describes it in two ways. First he says that all of the struggles of this life are a result of being far off from God. And so the reason why we have issues, the reason why we don't have peace is because the one relationship that was meant to give meaning to our lives, to provide unity to all of the other systems, that relationship is distant. And so we don't know peace because we don't know the source of all good and the glue that holds all relationships together. What this means is all of the alienation that we experience begins with an alienation from God. We don't know who we are, And so we don't know what this means for how we parent, how we pursue our spouse, how we be a good friend, how we approach our work, how we are to live in this world. We are not at peace in our own lives because we expect these relationships to provide all of the meaning for us instead of them being how we respond to the meaning given to us by God. What Paul tells us here is that Jesus came to rescue us and to establish peace. He says, for he himself is our peace. And what Jesus does is he, he, he brings us back to God through his blood. Which means Jesus doesn't just come down to earth, he comes with a purpose. Jesus' purpose from the very beginning was to give his life to pay the penalty for sin And to cleanse his people from all unrighteousness. And this cleansing is so his people who are far off from God could be reconciled and brought back. The verse describes it this way, verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So the Bible tells us Jesus is going to reconcile all things. But he begins the work of reconciling by bringing us back to the Father. Now, in his sermon on this passage, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones describes four parts that make up this reconciliation. What are the four things that are being done um, in this process? The first thing he says is that there's a change from hostile to friendly. That is, when we sin, we make ourselves an enemy of God. Right? Sin is choosing ourselves and robbing God of glory that belongs to him. If he is going to uphold his glory, if he is going to be holy and pure, it's actually going to make him against us. And so one of the things that God does in reconciliation is he takes us from being someone who God is against to someone who God is for. Jesus moves us from a hostile relationship with God to a friendly relationship. The second thing that's happening is, or the second aspect of this is that this is a complete process. 
Right? Often when we think of peace, and especially peace treaties, we think of compromise. Right? What is compromise? Compromise is a way for no one to be happy in a situation. Right? No, a compromise is a way to kind of give people a little bit of what needs to be done so that we can kind of be in agreement. But really, most compromises are, are sort of kicking a lot of stuff down the road. We'll deal with that later. Now, compromise is a necessary part of sort of temporary peace in this temporary world between human beings. But the reconciliation that Jesus comes to to produce is complete. It is finished. His work is a once and for all time solution to the problem of alienation from God. And so while we experience our relationship with God in sort of like, I feel like he's mad at me today. I think I'm doing okay. He's probably not as mad at me today. Um, The truth of it is Jesus acted and it is finished. We have been reconciled. Third aspect of this reconciliation is that it's a one-sided effort. Two people are not coming together to patch things up, right, and kind of like do their part. The work of reconciliation when we're talking about our relationship with God is Jesus doing the work on our behalf. The action comes down from above. The effort is a gift. We have been reconciled by Jesus. Fourth aspect is that's the remaking of something that already was. Uh, the word reconcile implies that something is being remade, reconnected. And so Jesus reconnects us to a reality that we really have never experienced before. We are a people who are born into sin and who continue to perpetuate sin every day of our lives. We're always giving reason for God to be at odds with us. But the truth is, we weren't created to live like this. We weren't created to always be in this chaotic situation. We were created to be in a trusting, submissive relationship to our Heavenly Father. And so as Jesus reconciles, as he brings us back to God, as he, he, he bridges that distance, he brings us back to our created reality. He remakes us to who we were always supposed to be. As Jesus reconciles us to the Father, he restores us to our created order. Which means we can now begin to be at peace with creation because we've been reconciled to the Creator. Now when we begin to make sense of or understand all of the parts that make this up, right? Jesus loving us while we were actively living against him. Jesus being willing to take on the flesh in order to save us. Jesus completing the work. Jesus giving to us when we do nothing to deserve it. This should bleed out into all of our other relationships. And this is what Paul points to in the second image that he paints for us. Along with distance from God being one of the problems, Paul says there's a dividing wall of hostility between us and others. He's making it clear that between human beings, there are all of these sort of walls that we create, these categories and these barriers between people. We find all sorts of reasons to alienate ourselves, to keep other people at arm's length. And ultimately, we do this in a search for peace. But when Jesus brings peace, he says it destroys the walls of hostility. Hostility. 
Now, we've created these walls, and so in many ways, we need a reason for them to be taken down. So what Jesus gives us in his peace is a way to stop relying on the walls to protect us. Let me show you what I mean. First, one of the reasons why we build walls, why we separate ourselves from other people, is to make sense of how we fit into this world. One of the images that that Paul's analogy would bring to the minds of the people here is the dividing walls of the temple. Right? The walls that kept the Gentiles from the Jews. There's an ethnic barrier there. But there's also socioeconomic separators between people. We have seen politics build walls between people in this last decade. Age plays a factor. Style plays a role. Now, all these categories are not just about how we think about other people. They're also a reflection of how we think about ourselves. We want certain people to like us. We want to belong to certain groups. And part of the way that group dynamics work is it's all about kind of letting the right people in and keeping the wrong people out, however it is that your mind organizes that. And so some of the walls that we build in our lives are more about creating the right environment for our own personal identity. We build walls so we can be in the room with the people that we want to identify with. Now, one of the things we want to believe about ourselves is that we're self-sufficient, right? I don't need other people. I am my own man. The way this plays into identity is we think, I don't don't care what other people think. I don't need them, which is a lie. We do care. All of us do. As a matter of fact, we care a lot. We care an awful lot about what other people think. Not every person. Only the ones we want to impress. But more than that, we actually need some affirmation outside of ourselves. The idea that I can just kind of keep a pulse on how I'm doing, it doesn't work. It'll drive you crazy. You need something outside of yourself to to tell you, yeah, you're doing okay. You are a good person. You are who you're supposed to be. I was listening to an interview about this actually this week by a guy named Dr. Alan Noble. He wrote a book called You Are Not Your Own. Good book. But he was making this point about how much we actually rely on outside affirmation in order to know who we are. And he went on to say that this is why cell phones and social media are such a crutch in our society. Because we need this external affirmation and these tools give us the ability to seek them out and get it constantly. And so this thing that we desire, this thing that we somewhat need, we are sort of seeking at a level that's a bit out of control. And ultimately, this self-sustained identity cannot provide peace. You have to be constantly formulating and creating to maintain it. And so we need something that is able to give us affirmation from the outside while also pushing us towards those that we would rather distance ourselves from. And that's what Jesus does. As God becomes flesh, he declares that his people are worth the cost of leaving heaven and the work of redeeming. 
Now, the story of Christmas is not ultimately about us. But it does give us value and identity. Because we are the people who Jesus came to save. We're the people of God. And it means our life has meaning, not because of anything that we do, and not because what the person sitting next to you thinks of you, but because of what has been done on your behalf. And so when Jesus declares, I love you and I will always be with you, he is both affirming us and calling us to share this love that has been given. And so those walls that have been built specifically to distance ourselves from those we don't want to associate with, those can be torn down. Because our identity is not based on these earthly relationships. Now this leads to the second reason and probably the more common reason as to why we build walls of hostility. And that's protection. Right? We build walls for the sake of safety. We have to cut toxic people out of our lives. Now as I said at the beginning, our modern definition of how to achieve peace makes it far too easy for us to see people as dangerous. Because anyone who challenges us or disagrees with us, who gets in the way of what we think is our path of peace, quickly becomes someone we label as needing to protect ourselves from. And so the way that Jesus destroys the hostility here is he simply gives us a better definition of human beings. According to the Bible, human beings are simply sinners in need of saving. And I would say the existence of a Savior confirms this. The fact that Jesus comes to reconcile and redeem makes it clear that if he does not act, there will be no peace. What this means then is that every single human being that you interact with in your life is either a person who has been saved and you are now unified with them in Christ, or they are a person who needs to be saved which means we should treat them with compassion as someone who has simply not received the same amount of grace that we have. Now Paul addresses the first one here in verse 15. He says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In other words, Jesus has done the work of unifying all who call themselves Christians. He has overwhelmed whatever it is that might separate us and make us different by giving us something that is much greater that we share. And our response to this should be to practice and press into this unity. The way that we should respond to this is not just, okay, so now I don't have to fear all of these other Christians in my life, but it should be to invest in the community of saints that God has blessed you with. We should tear down the walls of perceived hostility to experience the love of belonging that Jesus has secured for us. But we don't do that. Why don't we do that? Fear. Because we've been taught that other people are dangerous. We've been told that other people are going to hurt us. And this is reinforced by story after story after story about how people in the world hurt each other. What this has done in the church 
is it's made us people who read the community of saints through the lens of fear and hurt. Right? Everything's about church hurt. Everything's about how churches are going to hurt you. And so you have to be on your guard all the time. If you believe that you're eventually going to be hurt somewhere, you will never actually engage with it. They can't hurt me if I never let them in. But what all this does is it robs us of true community. And it robs the community of your participation. Because a church filled with half-hearted Christians waiting for the church to fail them cannot develop the depth of love and commitment and peace that Jesus intends his church to be. So the question is, how do we get over that? Because we can't just decide, like, I'm going to pretend that I don't fear. What we do is we trust Jesus more than we trust our fear. We believe that the unity that he provides and the work that he is doing is actually important I should say more important than our self-guided pursuit of peace. We give up on the idea that we know what is best for us. And we actually maybe trust that God knows what he's doing. I love the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes this in his book, Life Together. He says, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the, ground and, sorry, that the ground and strength and promise of all of our fellowship is in Jesus Christ alone, the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. And so we act in hope not because we believe that all will be perfect and peaceful, but because Jesus uses his church as a place of solitude for his people in this chaotic world. This is not the shalom that we desire. This will never be the perfect relationships that we are hopeful for. This is merely a taste of things to come. And so the way that God offers us peace now keeps us anticipating this perfect peace that awaits. One of the things that the incarnation reveals very clearly is that Jesus' path to peace is not going to be quick and easy and free from struggle. Right? When the Messiah came, people wanted to be in a way where he would snap his fingers and everything would be done. He would come and push the Romans out. He would come and everything would be great. He would come and solve their problems today. That idea of peace is very incomplete and very earthly. Instead, what Jesus did is Jesus came and he he lived in and suffered from the sin of this world. If we look at Jesus' life, we probably wouldn't call it peaceful. And yet the Prince of Peace was at peace because he knew exactly where this whole thing went. And so he became our peace by giving himself to bring us back to God And to give us every reason to tear down the walls of hostility between ourselves and others. And so this is the upside-down peace that Jesus offers to us. Not a freedom from any and all struggle. Not a path to sort of avoid problems. What he gives us is something to hold on to in the midst of it. A promise that all will be well. And until then, there are things that we can invest in like the Christian community, that build up our peace until we attain it. 
Now, one of the practices that Jesus gives us to invest in and, and, and to give us peace is the act of communion. And every week when we come together, we remind ourselves of what he has already done to reconcile us to the Father. All that he has done to unify us with one another. This is a reminder that peace will only come through Jesus' work. And so we anticipate his return to reconcile all things. So as you come to the table today, come to find your peace in him. Not to use Jesus to find peace. Find your peace in him, for he himself is our peace. Let's pray.